Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. According to James Beard Award semifinalist Matthew Rayford, when it comes to American haute cuisine, one need look no further than the South. Be it Seattle, Boston, Milwaukee, or Tucson, every city in the U.S. wants the best Southern restaurant which often translates as the best comfort food. On this week's show, we explore the possibilities of Southern cuisine with celebrated authors and chefs, beginning with Matthew Rayford. The self-described chef-farmer is spreading the good word of his Gullah Geechee heritage through his book, Breasts and Yam. Then, culinary superstar Sean Brock joins us to discuss his award-winning tome, simply titled South. Before we talk vittles with Appalachian food historian Ronnie Lundy. Finally, we sit down with Edward Lee. Raised in Brooklyn to Korean parents, the celebrity chef found his soul in Kentucky. In his book, Buttermilk Graffiti, Edward shared stories of his personal journey discovering America's new melting pot cuisine in the South. We've got four authors with four completely different takes on Southern food on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Shafarmer Matthew Rayford. Chef farmer Matthew Rayford earned that moniker while studying agroecology and food systems at UC Santa Cruz after already earning a degree from the Culinary Institute of America. He's a Gullah Geechee descendant of Africans who have inhabited the low country from North Carolina to central Florida for over three centuries. Matthew's roots in the region run deep. Over a century ago, his great-great-grandfather, Jupiter Gilliard, bought a piece of land located just west of Brunswick, Georgia. After growing up there, Matthew left the family farm when he turned 18, vowing that he'd never live there again after the racism he'd experienced in childhood. But after starting a food career in the D.C. metro area, Matthew did return. Today, he pays homage to his family's Gullah Geechee cuisine and heritage in his new book, Bress Nyam. I asked Matthew to share his origin story. My origin story would start with uh, Jupiter Gilliard being born enslaved in 1812, purchasing 476 acres of land in 1874, about eight years after the Civil War. And then my family holding on, not just holding on to that land and not um, just being relegated to being sharecroppers, but actually farming that land, growing up on that land as a young man, not realizing 
the bounty that was in front of me, you know, um, thinking that, oh, God, I can't wait to get out of the country, you know. Um, and so when I say country, I don't mean as in the United States. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm Gullah Geechee, so country mean, you know, you out in the woods, you know, you know how to hunt and all that kind of good stuff. And I think that's the beginning of my origin. I think that's the beginning of me. Um, I think it's deep in my DNA of uh, of doing that. And I think the other part is that, you know, my dad is a baker by trade, so I would be considered technically the second generation to be uh, in cooking as a profession. Actually, almost a third, because my great-grandmother on my dad's side also did the same thing. So it's like it's kind of like those things are like my origin story. And feeling okay with it, like walking around with it being like, I am a chef and a farmer. I, I, I come from these things. I understand the soil now more so than I've ever had before. Well, um, you describe yourself as a Gullah Geechee. Mm-hmm. And for those who may not know what that means, mm-hmm. would you explain who those people are? Yeah, the Gullah Geechee are the West Africans that were enslaved on the barrier islands running from Wilmington, North Carolina to northern Florida, um, even a little bit down further to central Florida. I'm what you would be considered a freshwater Geechee because I'm raised where the brackish water comes together, and that's where water comes down from the mountain area and runs into the ocean. That's where brackish water comes from, where the cool and the warmth hit, it stirs up. And so that that's a group of over 40 different nations that make up the Gullah Geechee as a whole, um, creating a language, a food way, all together um, by being actually secluded from the rest of the world. Um, so a lot of us probably understand driving on a highway, and those highways didn't really come into place until Eisenhower. So the bridges, the, the, the waterways being connected weren't there. And so with it not being there, there was only a ferryman to pull something from one side, from one island to the other, if you were going to go that way. Um, So these were enslaved folks that were left on those barrier islands to actually die, pretty much. And what folks didn't really realize was that you brought over a group of people that understood how to grow rice, understood how to grow cane, understood how to hunt, understood all these different, you know, how to make netting, um, how to create sweet grass baskets that can hold water on the inside of them. So you brought them over for those specific uh, skill sets, those trades, and then think that when you leave them, they're just going to fall apart. And instead, they flourished. They ended up creating, I mean, just massive amount of music and uh, foods and based on what was there, what was available. You're talking like local vores before there was ever the word. Well, you have such a legacy in your family mm-hmm. and on that land, and yet um, you really rejected that whole idea. When did you decide about this going back to the land thing? <laughs> For years, my nana would say, baby, what are we going to do with all this land? And I would go, y'all should go back to farming because that's what y'all know how to do. I've been saying it for years. And for some reason in 2010, I, I was sitting there with my nana and my mom and my sister and my aunt, first time at a family reunion in over 20 years, because again, I said I'm not coming back to the South. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden, I, I believe that the ancestors just came over me and was like, say it, say it, you need to come home. 
And I literally, she was like, baby, me and your mama and your auntie want to know something. We really need to know what we're going to do with all this land. And I just, without even thinking, I was like, Nana, we need to go back to farming it because that's what we know how to do. And no sooner than that came out of me, I turned and looked at my sister, and my sister just nodded her head, like really slowly, like, yes. And I turned back, and they were like, did you say we, baby? And I said, yes, ma'am. And they reached underneath the table and gift-deeded my sister and I 15 acres of land. Just, I mean, just like that. And I still, even at that moment, I still felt like something else had taken over for me what some people would consider like a magical energy, like you feel like like everything's tingling. Even when we got in a car and was driving back to Washington, D.C., my sister's looking at me and she goes, I, I, I don't know exactly what just happened. She's like, but now we got this land, what are we going to do? And you could just feel the energy in the car. My son slept from the time we left Brunswick, Georgia, to the time we got to Washington, D.C., peaceful sleep. Mm. Well, Nana had another treasure for you, didn't she? Yes. Where was that ancestral knowledge really hidden? hidden. Where did she, ha- oh, how my did she hand it over, Matthew? So she, I'm, I'm sitting in the schoolhouse. The schoolhouse was turned into a, a kind of like a way station, a guest house. And my, I hear somebody go, Matthew. And that's what they call calling through the woods, where you, like, say someone's name and kind of carry it. And if you carry it just right, when it hits the woods, it carries through the woods. So the next person hears that name, they call it out again. And then eventually it gets to you. So I hear this, Matthew. And I come running over to my Nana's house, and she goes, here, take a look at these. And I'm looking at the letters she and my great-grandmother wrote back in the 40s about what was either being planted or what was being harvested. So I ended up with, like, I forgot how many letters it was. I know it was way more than two or three. But to really understand, like, oh, we took crookneck squash to the market and we took this to the market and we did this and we did that. The way people used to write letters back in the day and send to each other were literally roadmaps for whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. And literally that roadmap is set down. And so we right now plant according to those conversations like beware the Ides of March. So March 15th, if it hasn't been a frost, won't be a frost. And that has set true for 10 years that I've been back at the farm. And so beware the Ides of March. I mean, you got some time, but don't try. If, if you think it's going to be a cold snap, according to the almanac, don't do it. And then wait for that full moon to pop up so you can get them potatoes in the ground, you know, at the end of March. And so I still farm like that. Matthew, you farm and you cook. Mm -hmm. And um, the world is very lucky to now be in receipt of your amazing book. Thank you. Where everybody can have a taste of those generations and generations there on the farm yes and what's the name of the book the book is breasts and yam which means bless and eat in Gullah Geechee a lot of people set out to recreate their family's heritage recipes 
But what you have done over and over again is while recreating the family tastes, it seems to me that you've taken that culinary knowledge Mm -hmm. and perhaps just given it a little lift. Just a little push. Um, I think it also comes from like understanding flavor and flavor profiles even better. Um, So I remember coming back home about 12 years ago and someone going, oh, we're getting ready to do an oyster roast. And I literally said, what's that? And they were like, you're not from here? And I was like, yeah, I'm from (laughs) here, but I've never heard of an oyster roast. I was used to oysters on hot tin, which was literally some cinder blocks laid down, a piece of tin, a couple of holes poked in it, and a fire built underneath it. And then you would throw your oysters on top, throw that wet croaker sack on it, and wait to hear that first pop, and then you went and got your oysters. Well, now I'm seeing this whole different way to to do this, and I was like, I don't ever remember growing up seeing somebody light a grill and put oysters on. And so I was like, you know what? I want to bring oysters and hot tin back, but I want to make... I want to go back to making my own cocktail sauce because I grew up making cocktail sauce. I didn't even know people bought cocktail sauce until I was more than an adult. And so I was like, you know, let me do that in the book. Let's let's not talk about an oyster roast. Let's talk about oysters on hot tin, like the way folks would have done it. Just, I mean, if we think about it, everything that we've, we're doing now and creating now with food, our high cuisine now is Southern cuisine. Our haute cuisine is Southern cuisine now. Like every city in the United States wants to have the best Southern restaurant, the best comfort food around, the best biscuits and all those kinds of things. So, yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I wanted to kind of like raise it up a little bit, but also keep some of it just the same. So right there on Nana's farm, Mm -hmm. on Jupiter's farm, Mm -hmm. you are looking to prepare the next generation. Yes, we are. For what we need to know and what we need to do. There you go. It's all about 150 more years of us surviving. Well, I really hope everybody picks up a copy of Bresson Young because, in my opinion, it's a must-have for any American cookbook shelf. Thank you. I feel honored. Thank you so much. You're amazing. This was such a treat. Thank you. That was Chef Farmer Matthew Rayford, author of Breast and Yum. Coming up next, Chef Sean Brock talks with us about his James Beard award-winning book, South. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand. Beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew with their new box subscription program. 
Shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Chef Sean Brock is a Southern food evangelist. For decades, he's explored the realities of Southern foodways through cooking that blends tradition with innovation. The force behind multiple restaurants, Sean is perhaps best known for being the founding chef of Husk in Charleston, South Carolina. In Sean's best-selling cookbook, South, the award-winning chef breaks down the essential elements of Southern cuisine, from cornbread to shrimp and grits, highlighting the regional differences. We met with Sean to discuss his book and learn what he's doing to explore the possibilities of Southern food. Obviously, you're a Southerner. You're Southern-born, and that's where your roots are. Would you tell me a little bit about how food became your life and how the South became your credo? I grew up way back in the Appalachian Mountains near Kentucky in the southwestern corner of Virginia. In these rural areas, people still live the old-fashioned way. People grow most of the food they eat. My grandmother had a garden that was if, if I were to guess, I would say it was at least two acres. And that was my everyday. Uh, I lived with her for a few years, and those were my chores, and I was always in the garden. Even as a little, little, little kid, I was I just was fascinated by food growing out of the ground. I just couldn't believe it. Um, and I would just rummage through and eat the potatoes and the cabbage and the rhubarb uh, and just fell in love with food at a very, very young age. And my grandma saw that and really started teaching me more than just making biscuits and making cornbread and the simple things that, you know, the, the kids get to do. When I think about what Southern food is, I think about the way her food made me feel. And that's what I strive for. And that's what I try and teach my team is this is a cuisine that is rooted in emotion and it's rooted in nurturing and to me, that's soul food. One of the things that strikes me about South is that I think it has the earmarks of being a Southern food textbook because it's so all-encompassing. And you go into such detail about things that I never thought needed explaining, <laughs> like the difference between cooking fresh field or butter beans compared to dried. Why is that in the book? I'm glad you got that part of the book because I really wanted to like call this a field guide to Southern cooking. And I wanted to create a book that allowed me to share all the things that I've learned through my insane research and development and my obsessive, compulsive nature of just trying to um, 
make the best version of these classics um, that I can. And this is, you know, 20 years of trial and error in these recipes. I mean, to me, that's uh, what a wonderful thing to be able to share. It's where I start when I'm creating dishes, when I'm creating a plate of food for a restaurant or for my home. These are the foundational recipes that I start with. And the field pea example, I really enjoy because a lot of people haven't had fresh from the field peas just harvested. To me, those peas, when they are harvested and they just come out of that shell, they have so many layers of complexity of the soil that they were grown in. And each one has its own unique flavor. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of varieties. And in this technique, it's designed to cook them to capture as much vibrancy as possible, to capture almost the raw flavor. And the trick is to how do you get the depth of soul food and slow and low cooking and vibrancy at the same time? Well, it's not just about ingredients. Another thing that you throw tremendous light on in South is cooking techniques that it's my guess a lot of your readers have never thought of before or be familiar with. I love this section on fireplace cookery. Well, that one was one of my favorite, favorite things to do for this book. When uh, we opened Husk in 2010, I knew a way to capture the soul and essence of Southern food was through wood fire cookery and smoke and coals. And ever since then... I've just pushed myself to try different things every time I light a fire. For this book, I drew my fireplace at home. So I drew like these diagrams of the different areas and different techniques that I've done over the past decade with wood fire cooking. And I did it in a very interesting way. I I had all the techniques written down and then I just turned the recorder on my phone and I just started saying everything that came to mind about that technique and what I've learned and how to do it and what I would still like to learn. And then I had that transcribed and then edited down for that um, little essay. You know, you've got a project that you're working on called Before It's Too Late. Tell me about Too Late and what you're worried about. So my goal as a human being is to explore the possibilities of southern food for the rest of my life and in order to do that I need to know where it came from and what I've been discovering is the best information the biggest aha moments cannot be found on Google they are not on the internet they are word-of-mouth narrative they are having a conversation with someone who's never measured anything in their lives, who's never even opened a cookbook um, and never written a recipe. And it's that natural cookery that, that I just love. And I don't think our current generation appreciates it enough, and I'm afraid that it's slowly starting to dwindle away, and I just can't have that. So my goal is to take a field recorder everywhere I go at all times and a camera and just gather as many conversations as possible, as many seeds as possible, and just store it somewhere safely. 
Why are the seeds so important to you? To me, seeds carry multiple generations of wisdom. Wisdom that wasn't easily won. Wisdom that we cannot ignore. Not only do they carry incredible wisdom, but these seeds in their true land race forms are not only the most delicious, they're the most nutritious. And that's by design. And if we can get back to those things, if we can get back to focusing on deliciousness, we can focus on nutrition, and we won't need all these crazy things that are happening with food these days. Thank you, Sean Brock. It was an honor. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Sean Brock, author of South, Essential Recipes and New Explorations. Appalachia, or more specifically the Appalachian Mountains, range from northern Alabama all the way to Canada. Yet when we speak of the people of Appalachia and their food and culture, we're talking about the South. Even today, the region remains fairly isolated, something that's helped it gain almost mythical notoriety. Appalachian icon and author Ronnie Lundy has devoted much of her life to studying and preserving the foodways of Appalachia. Ronnie's research separates myth from fact to give us a better understanding of the people and their vittles. What I was looking at when I wanted to talk about vittles, the vittles of the region, what I wanted to do was to talk about the parts of the region that are known as Southern Appalachia are sometimes Central and Southern Appalachian. And what defines them, when you look at the larder or the table of this region, what you see is that it is a fundamentally Southern larder. You'll see pork used not just as a centerpiece, but also as a seasoning and cured, uh, the whole hog used, um, chicken, of course, And then this tremendous southern garden with a lot of emphasis on green beans and butter beans, lots of greens, cornbread and quick breads. But what distinguishes the southern Appalachians from the rest of the south is that because of our latitude and our altitude and the topography, we have very, very severe winters and very limited growing seasons. So we had to develop these techniques of putting food aside for the winter. Well, of course, we are all familiar with the coal mines of Appalachia, but I am not sure that people are really aware about the salt of Appalachia. Of course, through history, from almost the dawn of time, he who has the salt is often king or very wealthy. And This is something that goes far back, and salt really plays a very important role in Appalachian foodways. That was not just because it was such a delicious seasoning, but because it was a method of preserving food, again, so you can eat through the winter. And it 
plays a huge role in part of what distinguishes Appalachian cuisine um, from other southern foods. We fermented in salt a number of foods that were not fermented elsewhere. Um, obviously, sauerkraut was in many places, but in the Appalachian Mountains, the German settlers took those green beans that were so prolific and there were so many varieties of them in the Appalachian Mountains and they salted them down in crocks and they took corn, which, you know, came from the New World, and they took corn and scraped it off the cob or sometimes even put pieces of the cob in crocks with salt and salted that down and it was it was allowed to ferment and to keep through the winter and when you wanted to eat, uh, when you needed a, a main dish, you would drain the beans or the corn or sometimes the two together. You'd drain off the brine and then you would put that in a skillet with bacon grease or lard or some sort of meat fat and you would warm it up and cook it, let it brown just a little bit and that was served as a main dish with cornbread. So that's what would be referred to as sour corn sour corn and pickle beans, they were called. So interesting to me because it seems like the world is always fixated on sweet corn. So to, mm-hmm. I never heard about sour corn before. Let me tell you something. Once you taste it, you will not want to stop eating it. And I will tell you that I have trouble finding fresh corn that I want to eat anymore because we have moved farther and farther and farther in the direction of sweeter and sweeter corn. And that's not the taste I want. I want a corn taste. I want something that is creamy and taste of the field and has a sort of earthiness to it. And I find that at my produce market, if I go to the older produce farmers and I ask if they have any corn that's not so sweet in the back. They'll look at me trying to figure out if I mean what I'm saying, but then they'll go pull some things out that they grow for their own families. Ronnie, we would be remiss in moving on from the topic of corn without discussing corn liquor. Could you tell us what does it mean to have a case of Jake leg? And and that's a that's a case like a medical case, not like a, a wooden bin full of some sort of liquor. I, you know, the tradition of making a homemade liquor was something that from the very beginning was happening in the Appalachian Mountains. In fact, um, when the frontier was being settled, people initially didn't trust the water, which is kind of ironic because it was beautiful water at that time. But in the era of prohibition, when suddenly it was illegal, people were making it and making a lot of shortcuts in it. The liquor that was made had some sort of chemical in it. Sometimes it would be even battery acid or something chemically that they had added to kind of up the fermentation process so they could get it out on the street and make money faster. And Jaquag is a condition that's caused when the liquor you drink can cause paralysis. Oh. And part of the story about the Jake leg is that when you would drink it, then you would walk. Your One of your legs would sort of have, I call it a flop foot walk. You know, you stumble, and then eventually, for most people, it would go away as the liquor wore off. So this happened in um, the town that I grew up in, in Corbin, Kentucky, 
And then all around the town, they had this walk, and it was a scandal. And everyone kept waiting for the um, county judge and the sheriff to bring somebody in, you know, or press charges. But nobody saw the county judge and sheriff for a couple of days. And then when they finally did show their faces, come back out, the remnants of that Jake Leg walk were still obvious in both of them. So um, obviously they'd been into the same bad liquor as everybody else. Well, you've got to absolutely love the Appalachia of old and of new. And absolutely. It's so wonderful the way you've encapsulated it all within the pages of your book. Oh, Poppy, thank you so much. This was such a wonderful interview, and I really appreciate your good questions. Ronnie Lundy, author of Vittles, which received the James Beard Foundation's Book of the Year Award in 2017. How do you cook leather breeches? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor and from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Louisiana's North Shore is turning up the heat for the annual Tammany Taste of Summer. Plan your escape to St. Tammany Parish for delicious adventures in dining, hotels, and other places to play in Abita Springs, Covington, Madisonville, Mandeville, and Slidell from August 1st through September 15th. Learn how to get your own Tammany Taste of Summer Pass by visiting TammanyTaste.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. How do you cook leather britches? First, we'd better explore what leather breeches are. Leather breeches are a classic dish of Appalachia. They're pole beans, like yellow wax or green beans, that are dried, a method of preserving taught to early settlers by the Cherokee Indians. The beans are rinsed and the stems are removed before being strung whole and hung to dry. Leather breeches last almost indefinitely once dried, but if you're going to try this at home in Louisiana, I strongly suggest you hang your leather britches in your air-conditioned kitchen instead of outdoors as they do in the mountains of Appalachia. Louisiana's humidity simply won't allow for proper outdoor drying. So be prepared to have the beans festoon your kitchen for at least two and a half weeks before they're fully dried. 
Why go to all this trouble to cook beans? Chef Sean Brock says that the drying creates so much umami that the resulting pot liquor tastes like roast beef. When revived in a pot of water with a smoky ham hock, the skins of leather breeches become silky and almost dissolve on the tongue, while the beans take on a velvety texture. Yum. So string up those leather breeches and get ready for a real Appalachian treat. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Well, my home's in the Blue Ridge Mountains. My home's in the Blue Ridge Mountains. My home's in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And I ain't going back there anymore. Hello, I'm Edward Lee from Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm a chef and a writer. Born to Korean parents and raised in Brooklyn, Chef Edward Lee moved from New York to Louisville, Kentucky in 2003. Since then, Edward has made his mark in the Derby City and Washington, D.C., with a group of critically acclaimed restaurants. He may be best known, though, for his Emmy-nominated season of the PBS series, mind of a chef. In 2018, Edward stopped by our studio while touring with his cookbook, Buttermilk Graffiti, which went on to win a James Beard Award the following year. Edward began by sharing the story of how a kid from Brooklyn found global acclaim fusing traditional Korean ingredients with flavors of the South. So it's a long story. First of all, I don't know why, but when I was in junior high school in in Brooklyn and all my friends were listening to hip hop, I was listening to Johnny Cash. And I don't know why. It just it started. I think it started with Folsom Prison Blues. Um, And I don't because like no one in my family, like I have no connection to the South. Like no one in my family's from here or anything. But I moved down here because of the Kentucky Derby. I think I had a little too much to drink, and and I just wound up. staying in Louisville for a little bit too long. I think any inquisitive chef is going to be um, influenced by his or her surroundings. And um, I didn't cook Southern food when I first moved down here. I mean, I was just, I had a restaurant in Louisville, Kentucky, um, 610 Magnolia, and I was just sort of cooking some weird Asian Eurocentric food. And, and you know, I remember the first day I, I drove by a, a stand and saw the word sorghum, you know, and I, and I kind of stopped and I said, what is it? And some redneck and dungarees said, you know, this is, you got to try this because it's made from a sorghum plant. And, and I tried it and I was like, oh, this is better than honey. So I started using that. And then someone introduced me to, you know, a locally milled grits. And I was like, wow, this is really good. Mm-hmm. So I started using that. So little by little, it, it really happened over a long period of time where I just started using these ingredients. And rarely did I use them in the traditional way. But I was finding all these ingredients being influenced by them and thinking like, man, these are delicious. I remember, you know, getting introduced to, to um, Colonel Newsom's country ham for the first time and thinking like, this is better than any prosciutto I've ever had in my life. Like, why am I using prosciutto? So little by little, my pantry changed. And as that happened, um, and obviously I traveled and, and was influenced by people. I remember going to a, a soul food restaurant for the first time. And I always say like, I remember the first time eating a bowl of collard greens and and finding home you know to me it was like this is something that was even though it's not korean food at all it 
felt like it, and it felt like something that was home. And and I just remember thinking, like, I could stay here forever and cook. You know, if this is the food of this region, I could be here forever. Well, I'm sitting here looking at you and thinking about the things you write about, the things you're fascinated about. You're obviously very drawn to immigrants, assimilation, and the immigrant experience in America. I can only imagine that you have had a very fascinating life because you're Korean American, Mm -hmm. but maybe you could pass for all sorts of different ethnicities, Mm -hmm. perhaps. Do you want to talk about that and what inspires you and, and, and fuels that exploration? When I started doing this project and I started traveling to all these cities around the country, and again, looking at it from a food lens, you know, what, and I pose this question to you as I do to everyone, like, what thread binds us together as Americans in terms of our food, right? Because the, the, the way you eat in New Orleans versus the way someone eats in Seattle or someone eats in Southern California or the Midwest is so different. There's so and, and, and there's almost no continuity. There's almost nothing. And it always makes me think, like, what is it about it? You know, like if you go to Italy, there's some sort of chain that, that binds it all together, France or Asia or, you know, South America. And I, just, I look at America and I look at it, it's all of its, you know, vastness. And I look at all the different layers and I go, what? I don't, I don't know what it is. What binds us as Americans? What holds us together as Americans in the food space? But then you take it to another level and go, well, what, 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 what makes us Americans? You know, and, and I think that's the ultimate question. And the ultimate question for me is, in that vast sort of definition of America, where's my place in it? Where do I belong in it? As this immigrant of Korean kids who grew up in Brooklyn but cooks Southern food and lives in the South but doesn't quite belong in the South but in part of the South. And, and I think all of us are just looking for our place in this world. And, and when it comes to a culinary or cultural landscape in America, like where do I fit in? Um, and I don't have the answer for that, but one of the things that I did realize was in writing this book, like it's our diversity. that, that it's The only thing that I can really say that's truly American is our diversity. Right. I spent a week in Italy like a couple of years ago because my friend got married there. So I had to spend a week in the same town. And <laughs> it was it was the region where I can't remember the name. But it was the region where they make pesto. Uh-huh. And for the first two days, I was in heaven because I was like, this is the best. It was amazing. And by the third day, I was like, does anyone know a Chinese restaurant in this town? Because I'm kind of <laughs> sick of pesto. And by the fourth day, I was just like, I can't eat another bite of this thing. And I just wanted anything. And, and, but there, they never get sick of it. There, they, they don't want anything else. They go, and I was like, can I just even get like a, a, a spicy red sauce? They were like, we don't. We make pesto. <laughs> we make pesto. And, and we don't, and we don't, we, they, we have make seafood pasta, but we don't put lemon in it because it's not, it's not, lemons don't grow here. You know, and and just that that kind of very strict traditionalism, which is fine for for that part of Italy, would never fly here because we demand diversity. We want diversity in our food. We want to wake up and eat fried chicken and have an Indian food for lunch and have hummus for dinner. Like, we, and that's not even weird. 
But it's something because we're American. Because we're American. But it's something that in any other country would be such a luxury. Would be such a weird thing because you don't do that. You don't eat outside of your, you know, your class or your race or your whatever it is. And here, you know, that's the one thing that I can find about this country that we can all agree on is that. We like our food, and we like our food to be very different. We want choices, and we want diversity. And so, if we just take that as a starting point, then we can, you know, see it through all the other circles of culture. And be like, of course, where would we be without immigrants and their food and their we cultures? Be. Yeah, we yeah. just wouldn't be. And I'm so glad that you talked about being in Italy and saying, "Where's the Chinese restaurant?" <laughs> because when you're exploring. Almost anything, anywhere, you inevitably seem to ask, where's the Chinese restaurant? Because they're everywhere. (laughs) It's incredible. And what I would like to bring this whole conversation back to about Asian food and Southern food is I would like you to take us all to the Hibachi Buffet in Clarksdale, (laughs) Mississippi, where you can get sushi, fried foods, salad, and soul food. And in the kitchen, somehow, there's a Chinese man, a young Mexican, and an African-American woman. So where do you find the sensibilities in all that? And what the heck were you doing at the Hibachi Buffet? And it's, it's funny, and it's, a, and it's a Japanese name. There's like not a single Japanese person in the whole place. Um and, and you know this is it's funny because I was in yeah I was in Clarksdale right and then everyone said, and everyone everyone that was a foodie right was like don't go there it's not and it wasn't it wasn't like it wasn't something that I would go like oh my god but to me that restaurant and, and how they existed it was so symbolic it was like a microcosm of America to me that is so American and and that you have these people and and. What we do here in this country is we coexist with each other. And sometimes that, that, that existence is not happy. Sometimes it's very tense. Sometimes it's violent. Sometimes it's harmonious. Sometimes it's wonderful. But we do. We just sit here and, and we, we, we are so many different people. It's, you know, it's like a big soup. And every generation, we just keep throwing ingredients in it. And sometimes the soup is not very good. And sometimes the soup needs improvements. But sometimes it's fabulous. And, and it just we just keep throwing it. And it's never going to end. It's never going to be finished. And it's not pleasant sometimes. And it's not very neat and, and, and doesn't have closure. Um, but that's who we are. And, and, and I think the sooner that we embrace that, both in its food and the cultural implications, we can start to sort of understand, like, like, these differences are our strength as well. That was Chef Edward Lee, author of the James Beard award-winning book, Buttermilk Graffiti. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. I've got big news about our upcoming monthly Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunch, held on the last Sunday of every month at Tujac's Restaurant. This family-friendly event includes three courses, four drag queens, and of course, bottomless mimosas. 
On Sunday, August 28th, we've invited our friends Bo Cialino and Matt Armato to bring their housewarming magic to our drag brunch. They'll be signing books and mixing and mingling, sharing all those at probably this tricks you've learned from them on Instagram. Don't miss the fun. Reservations may be had online and by calling 504 525 8676. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have more than 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily, for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, producer Blake Longlinay, the newest member of our team Kate Gotro, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.